HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. We have an all-new newsletter coming out tomorrow. All around the concept of being irregular, we feature some of our favorite spots, including Maison Premier, Howlin' Ray's, Young Bang Society, and we dive into the concept of what it means to return to a spot again and again and again. And we are excited to probably add a new spot to that list of regular swing-ins, the Nortwick in New York. We sit down with co-owner and executive chef Andrew Quinn. He talks about his road to opening, the freedom he finds in cooking from the farmer's market, what regulars can expect on the stereo when they sit down at the bar. And then we head into the archives down to the south with a performance from Grammy-nominated Louisiana Cajun and Creole musician Roddy Romero. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. Girl, I love you so. 
Andrew, thanks for joining us on Snacky Tunes. Looks like a beautiful day in New York. You know that I'm slightly jealous on the other side of the country because I know that this is the time of the year that the city really shines. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It is a beautiful day here in New York. Um, You know, I've been reading a lot about the restaurant since you've opened. And one of the interesting details that I keep seeing is being culturized as a neighborhood restaurant from the start. And we've always said on the show that long success, the restaurants that really stay around settle into being a neighborhood restaurant. But you're marking that from the start. Why was that descriptor important to you from the right from the beginning, from the jump? Yeah, that's it's an interesting point. I mean, um, there's a couple of different reasons why I think we decided to go down that that route. And um you know, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit about my background, but mm-hmm. my entire upbringing in kitchens has been Michelin, Michelin one star, two star, mm-hmm. three star, mm-hmm. you know, for, you know, 10, 15 years almost. Um, and so when you go it alone, for whatever reason you do go it alone, um, you have to make that call on what, what are you going to do? What are you going to mm-hmm. be? And um, mm-hmm. I think um, for me and for my business partner, Cedric, I think 
one of the more attractive things for us was to take a lot of the training that we'd received and uh, in that background in, in, in those high-end Michelin restaurants uh, and then be able to, to present it in a way that's more accessible for, for people, whether that's on a Tuesday night or, you know, regardless mm-hmm, of what your, mm-hmm. you know, your income level is. Um, sure. So our, our whole stick is, is doing those touches of luxury, um, you know, high-end ingredients, great yes. technique with the food, um, the service as well. We try to hit all the points of service while it's not being too stuffy. It's, it's relaxed. It's approachable. Um, and we decided to go down that avenue. And the other thing is when you open a restaurant, especially in a city like New York, is you've got to kind of put that marker out. And, yeah, you know, you are you going to be the red sauce joint? Are you going to be, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the, the cool new sure. Szechuan spot? You know, right, like right, right. people need that tag to, to identify, you know, oh, have you been to that cool new you know, wine bar or whatever spot it is. And for us, we were, you know, we were kind of questioning that and it was difficult to find our, our identity of, of what we wanted that buzzword for, to be for us. Um, you and need so that we, story. You yeah, need that, you, need, yeah. you need that thing when people talk about you, what is that restaurant, you know? Um, and so the neighborhood thing kind of, kind of fit for us. And um, the West Village, you know, it feels very much like a neighborhood. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's where we became the Nortwick and, and decided to, to kind of, I don't know, I guess you'd say market ourselves as, as that neighborhood restaurant. So, so yeah. I mean, you mentioned it about coming from such fine dining, but let's not undersell the fine dining because you were at 11 Madison Park, executive sous chef um, at the summer house, the winter house. And I'm not saying that it, it wasn't a neighborhood spot because it definitely was of the neighborhood, but you know, it has global recognition. It was number one at, at, in the world. And not that you're saying like, we're anti, we're opening a place that's like opposite of that, but you're pulling stuff from that level. So what was a great thing or what were some of the elements that you really loved being at such really the, the literal upper echelon of fine dining? You know, I think the, the biggest things that I took away from, from working at a restaurant like that was, um, the standard, mm. obviously, also, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, the discipline, but also um, you kind of realize what you're capable of, you know, when you're, when you're pushed to such a yeah. limit um, where, you know, second best isn't good enough, everything has to be as close to perfection as possible. You realize, you know, it's difficult to break through that wall, but once you get there, it's like, wow, you know, this is really, really side. amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you figure out how to make food taste better. You figure out how to be more organized. You figure out how to make things, you know, and then the things that come with that is, is you know, markers like efficiency, sure. um, creativity, um, you know, you're being forced into managing effectively because otherwise things go wrong and, and that, that's not acceptable. So, no. you know, taking those, um, those lessons and those standards and then, yeah, being able to introduce it into a restaurant like this, it, hopefully it's those things that kind of set us apart from the other places that maybe market themselves as a, as a neighborhood restaurant. And you don't see it straight off the bat maybe, but it's those little touches throughout the meal, throughout service, throughout, you know, whatever dish it is that you're tasting that you, you realize, oh, this is a little bit better than your average ketchup or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of sneaky things going on or subtle things that are just elevating it. Um, Mm -hmm. before we move into when you started getting the idea of this restaurant, 
know, we haven't had like a lot of guests that have been at a restaurant that hit number one while they were working there. <laughs> so I just, I have to ask because you get to say you were at the best, you were part of the team to get the best. When did you start to realize or you could feel the momentum leading up to that? And then what was that actual moment like? Yeah, it was, it was super cool. It's, it's hard to imagine. It was, uh, about six years ago now. That's mm-hmm. crazy. But, mm-hmm. um, I started working in 11 Madison park, 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I moved to the United States for that reason to go to work at that restaurant. And originally wow. it was supposed to be for, for just one year. I was on a student visa, a J one visa. Um, and then, you know, for some reason, whatever it was, the powers that be at that restaurant, um, wanted me to stay and, and become part oh, of the management team. Don't sell team. yourself short. Don't sell yourself <laughs> short. Uh, which I duly obliged. And, uh, you know, I came back, became a sous chef. And, you know, even back in 2014, when I went there, there was this sense that this restaurant was pushing towards something mm. great. Mm-hmm. You know, every person in that kitchen, in huge, huge team, as you can imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but every sous chef was incredible. You know, every cook that was in that kitchen was... Deep bench. Yeah, and super deep bench. And then on top of that, you had the, the top end leadership in mm-hmm. the kitchen was, was really pushing every single one of those people to be the best that they could be. So you could you had this sense that something something great was happening. And then from 2015, 2016, I think uh, EMP dropped in the list, actually, in that, that 50 best list. They went down a couple of places, which was like this huge shock and disappointment. Um. And then it all kind of came came around into this perfect story leading into 2017 because sure. the restaurant was going to close for a few months to I renovate. Remember. Yep, yep. Um, and so it was kind of the end of that chapter of 11 Madison Park. And then it was a couple of months before, maybe maybe a couple of weeks before we closed the restaurant, um, that the 50 Best was announced. And it was being held in London, I believe, um, which meant the time difference dictated that it was going to be announced in New York City at like 7 a.m. Right. So we did this big viewing breakfast party at the restaurant. Uh, mm-hmm. We put a big projector on. We watched the whole thing happen. And then, yeah, it counted down and and, and we were number one. And, you know, it was crazy. Everyone was obviously ecstatic. You're um, like, all right, we're not in 50 to 40. We're not 40 to right, 30. Right, right. And you start, yeah. start, you're like, okay. And then when that second yeah. restaurant place yeah. is announced and it's not you and you're like, oh, my God, you know. Uh, well, it's, one. So, yeah, it's, it was, only, it's one of two things. It's either you're right. number one or you're, or you're not really on the list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it was incredible. And then um, we shut down the restaurant. There was a huge party, you know, everything was getting pulled out. So, you know, everything in the restaurant and the dining room got trashed in the best way possible. You know, sure. I remember oh, James, yeah, yeah. chef James Kent was graffitiing the walls and, you know, Daniel Holmes dancing on the banquets and it was, you know, incredible and then yeah we went off into the hamptons and we did the pop-up restaurant summer yep. house yep. Uh, we took the entire team out there um and then that was super successful which which turned into you know this tr- crazy traveling restaurant that went around the hamptons and aspen for the next year and a half and yeah it was a huge chapter in my life it was a huge chapter in, in that restaurant's life and great times man great times so given all of that and given that you you hit the top and you were you were at the top of the team and not to be gauche about it, but like you're in the upper echelons of the chef world and the financial world and you're traveling the country, you sort of could either stay and ride it out with EMP and keep cranking it out, or you could go and do another fine dining thing given your background. 
what made you want to start opening or start thinking about opening a spot like the Nordwick? Like, was that always your goal? Or did you say, I've hit the top and let's do something different? No, I think um, it was always, I think it's any real person's dream that gets into a kitchen that one day you own mm-hmm. your own restaurant, you know, you mm-hmm. have your own, your own place. And what's interesting about that for me is that most people know what they want the restaurant to be called, what they want the food to be, what they want it to look like. I didn't really have any idea about that. I knew I wanted to do it myself. I wanted mm. to go it alone. I didn't know exactly what that was going to be at the time. Um, but it all sort of happened serendipitously. And um, mm. we were doing the restaurant in Aspen and there was an open kitchen. And, you know, I was the chef on the pass and there was one guest who took notice and he pulled over who is now my business partner, Cedric, who was, you know, wine director at that restaurant at the time. Mm-hmm, he said, mm-hmm. who is, you know, who is that chap? Um, I would love for him to potentially be my private chef. <laughs> uh, so I had a conversation with him because, you know, I, you always have those conversations. And um, sure. I ended up cooking for him a couple of times. Um, and then he ended up saying to me, you know what? We should open a restaurant. You should, you should not be a private chef. You should open your own restaurant. And so, you know, Gentleman's very influential. He's been a huge part of this restaurant. Um, and he is influential in restaurants. So to have someone like that, be sitting, sure. sitting at a table with someone like that and to, to say to you, you should open a restaurant, it ignites that fire. Like, wow, yeah, I can do this. Okay, let's go. And so, you know, that's when I, it felt natural for me to, to, to move into that next part of my life, leave the 11 Madison Park thing behind and, and try and make a go of opening a restaurant. And luckily you know, I wasn't prepared at all and, and didn't get far along in that process because a few short months afterwards, COVID mm-hmm. happened, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the whole world shut down and, you know, I can only imagine how disastrous it would have been to open a restaurant a couple of months before COVID. So, right. so that happened. And, you know, regardless, I was nowhere near ready to open a restaurant anyway. Um, COVID happened that pushed me out into the private chefing world. Mm. Um, which eventually introduced me to a lot of the people that are now um, investors in this restaurant. So, so it if it out. wasn't for all of those things happening, you know, the Nortwick wouldn't be here today. So, yeah, it's 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 been a crazy ride, but happy to be on it. What was that feeling like when you getting past COVID, getting everybody in in um, in order, and then taking that leap on your own and leaving this? world this fine dining world behind a little bit how did you feel going into what sorry private private chefing or or opening the restaurant opening the restaurant i mean yeah you're it's crazy to talk about it now because now that the restaurant is open and uh you know we're seven days a week we're brunch at the weekends and you know touch wood we're, we're doing well and it's busy and when you're on that treadmill it's you don't really look back and think about those those times and it's Mm-mm. you know a conversation Mm-mm. like this you have the chance to sit down and reflect i mean yeah i was totally scared out of my wits i didn't know what i was doing mm. everything was a everything yeah. was a was guesswork you know uh, i think it's important to uh, mention that this would never have happened also if it wasn't for cedric coming on board yeah um yep. who's my business partner in all of this and after pitching this idea to over 50 different people potential investors and seeing probably 30 or 40 different restaurant spaces and it not working out and being told no over and over and over 
ready to throw in the towel and then go back into working as a restaurant for somebody else. Um, it wasn't until Cedric came in and got involved that mm. people saw that and it clicked and then it, it happened really, really quickly. But still, you know, regardless of the experience that we may have and, and the collective decades in the industry that <laughs> he and I have together, yeah. we didn't know what we were doing. You know, sure, we could make sure, educated sure. guesses, but, um, you know, people often ask me, how did you come across the number that you had to raise to open the restaurant? And, uh, honestly, I guessed, <laughs> and, you know, I knew, you know, if, well, you make an yeah, you look at the economics of this, the restaurant that you're potentially going to open and right, what kind of turnover right. that's going to make yep. and yep. what yep. your profit margin could potentially be and what that means your payback looks like. And then, you know, I can't really afford to raise more than $2 million, but you can't afford to open a restaurant you can't open a restaurant in the West Village for less than a million dollars. So I'll guess somewhere in the middle of that. And that's what yeah. we did. And then we made the budgets work. And then um, at that point, you just, you're just going, you know, you're figuring things out daily and, uh, and hoping it works out. And it's just a lot of hard work and a lot of um, attention to detail where you can and, uh, you know, hope and pray that it, it works out. And, and so far we're actually a, a, not too far away from our one year from anniversary. Year. Yeah. So. From one year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's take a quick musical break. And when we come back, I want to talk about some of your work with, um, the New York purveyors that play such a huge role in the menu, some of the music that you play and, um, some of the flexibility, uh, in this new type of setup. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Oh, Shout out Fresco. I, I, I. I can take two steps along the street without turning head and head. I think they're onto me. I go about my business on the screen, but they're yearning for my life information on cheap. Longing in your knees, you look me up and down like I'm a tree. Thinking I don't see the way your fantasies unleash. I stare ahead so far away, so I don't meet your gaze. Beware of a lonely man. Go about my day, my vision turns into a tunnel I'ma live my life Cause it's a beautiful day So I don't care that you can away And I'ma stay back Welcome back to Snacky Tunes We're here with co-owner and chef 
of the Nortwick, Andrew Quinn, and, you know, leaving the world of Michelin, fine dining, and the world's 50s best list, but taking some of the standards with you is a really great and unique position to be in. But also one of the great things is you get to leave behind some of the Michelin fine dining stuff and the world's 50 top best stuff. And what you're talking about before the break about how, you you know, you're sort of rolling it. You're sort of calling an audible at times of how you're going to run things and what it's going to look like while still being up to your level of standard. What did it feel like to have this new level of flexibility and this uh, ability to adapt and to say, like, we don't have to do this anymore. We're in a new type of restaurant, new type of world. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting because I think being kind of almost brainwashed into that attitude of things have to be <laughs> your know, word, your word, not mine. mine but yes, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. In a good way, you know, it has to be like that at that level. But um, I even carried some of that through into, into here and in, in, in this mm. restaurant and, you know, the opening menu I remember and, and even now is, you know, we get a lot of advice about what should be on the menu for a, a neighborhood restaurant. And honestly, some of it's true, you know, a lot of it's true in fact. And, we got it on good authority that uh, you kind of need to have a broader dish and you need to have a tuna tartare and you need to do a roast chicken and you need to do, you know, branzino because, you know, to be totally honest, 95%, maybe even more of the people that come to this restaurant, they're not coming to eat Andrew Quinn's food. You know, mm. um, they're coming because it's a nice restaurant in the West village. And so you got to leave that ego aside and put it at the door and, you do have to have some of those things on the menu because at the end of the day, that's what's going to pay the bills. And there's no reason why those things can't be creative and amazing and delicious. Um, and that kind of, you know, I mean, it's only recently, I think I've started to find my voice a little bit more in the kitchen and, and, mm. and have the bravery to say, I don't want to stick to this so much anymore. And like, I've got this cool idea for a dish that's maybe a little bit out there, but I want to put it on and try it out. And, a great example just recently actually is um you know i've been told that people in new york or people in the west village or people coming to restaurants like this they're not going to order pork as an entree mm. people just don't just don't you don't you're not going to no sell it okay. yeah what, what it is I, I don't know but um you know i wanted to just pork it i love pork and sure. um one of our i remember when Tanya. the west village dripped with pork belly <laughs> well let's Ten. bring it back i'm yeah. trying to get on that train um, yeah but yeah, one of our reps bought by a, a porcelet pork belly from um, from Montreal, which is like, you know, really, really amazing quality pork. And, you know, I cooked it up for this technique that I learned years ago in London. And uh, we put it on the menu as a special with, with peas that had just come in season and, and some mm. other stuff. And uh, it sold out in, in a couple of hours and people went crazy for it. And we actually had a reviewer come in that day and uh, an anonymous reviewer came in and he ordered it. And that was the thing he wrote about in the, in the very kind review that we got from eater. And so that would just goes to show, you know, you take that, take that chance, leap of faith and, and sure, sure, you should sure. be rewarded. So uh, yeah, I'm hoping there's going to be a lot more of that to come, but you know, like you said, having now learning and having that confidence and, and, and getting strength from those kind of examples that you can, have the bravery to do those things that I think is massive. So yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, you also hit on a point because you're working so much with 
New York purveyors and looking at the seasons and peas are in season. So we're putting peas on the menu and the pork's coming in and this, things like that. So you have a little bit of mobility in what you put on the menu. Why Mm -hmm. are you pulling from that farmer's market approach more uh, than something that's a little bit more rigid? Yeah, I think um, it's a great way to kind of dictate. I mean, every chef really, especially in a restaurant like this, should should be told what to do by uh, the seasons and by nature and, you know, what's good at the farmer's market. And, you know, why would you serve a tomato salad in January when you're getting those tomatoes flown in from, you know, Guatemala, Mexico, whatever it is, when... You can wait until the summertime when you can get some of the best tomatoes in the world from New York, you know, from, from Long Island when they're a million times better. So it keeps things interesting in the kitchen. It keeps it interesting for, for me, for my cooks, uh, for the people that are going to eat here. And I think it's an important part of, of any restaurant that you should have that relationship with, with the local purveyors, the local farmers markets, um, keep things as local as possible. You know, why not? And I think my time during COVID cooking a lot out and, uh, mm. you know, private chefing, I was going to those markets all the time and, and sure. you know, when the corn came in and it was amazing. And then, you know, the, the people on, yeah. I was cooking for would, yeah. would freak out and, you know, it's so much better than going to Christides and getting yeah. whatever it is that they sell there. So, so yeah, that's a huge part of the restaurant. It's a huge part of the, of, of the, um, of the menu. And, you know, I'm, I think back when I was going into opening this restaurant and, um there's a famous quote from i think it was david chang mm-hmm. maybe like 15 20 years ago and he said you know the chefs in in san francisco they can put slice a fig in half and put it on some crushed ice and win a michelin star because yeah the quality of the produce was so good whereas in new york <laughs> i remember you know, that i remember that how that touched off a quite a rival yes, between the city yes, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah famous fig and, comment yeah right and um you know, New York chefs have to manipulate all the produce and, you know, puree it, dehydrate it, rehydrate it, smoke it, you know, put it on the plate in order to win accolades. And honestly, you know, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think there is some really, really incredible produce, some oh, of the yeah. best in the world that I've that I've come across right here in New York. And absolutely, especially when you come out of the wintertime into the springtime and, and, you know, like you said, the peas, the fava beans, the ramps, mm-hmm. all that oh, stuff yeah. comes in. Move into the summertime and tomatoes, corn, like eggplant, whatever else. Why wouldn't you use the best stuff that you can get when it's right on your doorstep? You know, from absolutely. So from the people down the street. Now, right. Um, one of the other things beyond the menu and the the service and things like that, when you get to open your own spot and the ingredients you put on, is the atmosphere you set. And I'm looking at it now. And I see the design and I know the design has been a huge part of it and the music and the playlist, mm-hmm. which is so exciting because that's the other side of creating your own clubhouse where you like yeah. we get to pick the chairs we sit in and the music that right. we listen to, which some might argue is even cooler than like what you cook, depending on who you are. Can you mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about the design and you can talk to me a little about the music and the vibe that you're setting when people come in, especially sure. with the concept of it being a neighborhood spot? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, a huge part for me for the design designing this restaurant was um and also you know that's where the name kind of comes from is um we looked a lot at tradition and the idea that good style never goes out of fashion Mm -hmm. and i think especially 
you know, right now in this TikTok generation where, you know, what's trending lasts a week and then it's, it's old hat all of a sudden. So, and in restaurant design, you can be the coolest new, new kid on the block. Uh, you can have a disco ball in the bathroom and take selfies and that's amazing. But next year it's not cool anymore. <laughs> no. And then what are you going to do? Redecorate the entire restaurant once a year. It's not going to happen. So, you know, we wanted to keep it kind of neutral. We wanted to be classy. We wanted to be comfortable. Um, we also had a tiny budget, and when we opened mm. the restaurant, we were lucky that we got this spot that was turnkey, ready to go, and we basically just redecorated. And the ethos that me and Cedric had was, okay, let's save money absolutely everywhere possible, but the things that the guests yes. are actually going to physically touch yes. is where we can spend a little money on. So, you know, the banquettes, nice Italian leather, you know, Beautiful. we use auto glassware, you know, the tables are inlaid with leather. Um, a plateware is made by Conor McGinn upstate, which is another local producer, which is all custom, handmade, amazing. And you know, it's kind of worked. And we've got we've gotten some good feedback from it, which is great. But uh, in terms of setting the mood, and I know mm-hmm. this is a, a music centric podcast, so we'll get into it. Um, yeah, music for me is personally is is the the biggest factor that can. Yeah. dictate the mood in, in anywhere you know whatever it is in a kitchen in a restaurant in a you know whatever situation you're in so that's cool and it's interesting because the speakers don't work so great in here and we're <laughs> we're trying to save up a little money and and, and uh update those but um yeah there's been a lot of back and forth between me and a lot of the other staff in the sure. in the dining room about what we should be playing i feel very strongly about it but uh Sometimes I walk out into the dining room, I'm like, what is this song playing? Take it off the playlist. Um, but, you know, you've got to be careful with playlisting in restaurants. Of course, of course. Right, you know, it's the parental advisory. It's, yeah. it's a balance. And, and you've also, you got to you got to feel the mood. You know, we open for brunch at 11 a.m. And um, you're the first people, the only people sitting in the dining room is two elderly couples, you know, on their own. You can't be blasting yacht rock you know mm-hmm. it's, it's not mm-hmm. right so you got to turn it down and like step into a little bit when the restaurant gets busier you can turn the volume up a little you can maybe up the tempo a little bit and set the mood um but yeah yeah i mean i i think having that idea and also wanting people to know that they can come back again and again because the music's right and the banquettes are night and the food is changing and things like that and i know mm-hmm. you mentioned that you're coming up on a year and congratulations to that Thank you. Um, But I also have to imagine that going back to the whole concept of being a neighborhood spot, that this idea of having regulars and people return, because, you know, with fine dining, I mean, look, I've gone to some incredible meals at at some of the best restaurants in the world, not to brag, but I've gone once. And whether financially or situationally, like my desire to return just doesn't line up, but you're hoping to get people to come back in and to feel like, this is my spot. I own the spot. This is like, especially in New York, this is an extension of, of my experience living in the city. Yep. How important is it for you to have regulars and how novel is that concept to you as well? And then what does that relationship look like when you have people that you recognize that are coming in once a month or twice a week or things like that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's huge for us. And, um, it's it's difficult to put uh, you know markers of success in the sand sure. as you're as you're growing as a restaurant, but I think one of the biggest markers for us is that we have attained a group of regulars that come 
often, some once mm. a week, you know, and whether Amazing. that's on a Saturday night as a six top celebrating something or whether they just come in solo and sit at the bar uh, and have a glass of wine and a bowl of pasta. Um, we have a, you know, a good bunch of people now that have been in 30 plus times. Um, wow. That's amazing. Which is which is incredible. Shout out Franklin Isaacson, um, who we actually made a plaque and put it on the bar for him. We, so he, he has his bar seats and sits there under his under his plaque. So um, that's a dream. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, it's it's great. It's huge. And as well, in, from a business sense, um, if you can get people to come back that many times, you know that's huge. You don't yeah. want the worst thing in the world is or not the worst, but somebody comes in and then, and then they never come again. You want people to come have a great time, tell their friends about it, their friends come. And then, you know, it becomes one of those spots that's higher up on your radar of, you know, where do you go for dinner tonight? Because mm. especially where we are in the West village, every restaurant is oh, full yeah. at seven thirty on a Saturday night on a Friday night, every restaurant is full. You know, there's no, we're never going to have an issue touch wood filling this restaurant prime time on those days. Um, the successes and the failures are dictated it's exactly. Yeah. It's Wednesday at five thirty. It's Tuesday yeah. at nine thirty. It's you know, if you can get those people to come in then, and you can fill the restaurant at those times, that's going to dictate your longevity as as a restaurant and, a, and a, as a business. So you've got to take care of those people because they're the people that will take care of you, you know, in the long run. Mm. So yeah, a huge part of the business, and we're very happy to be in a good place with more and more regulars. I love that. Um, mm-hmm. Congratulations. Uh, if people want to come visit, I imagine you guys will be ringing in the one year a little bit, uh, having mm-hmm. some specials, especially since it's dialed in right in the middle of the summer when everything's really coming to the markets. Where can people go? Where can people follow along? Where can people check out the information for the restaurant, make reservations, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we're on Instagram, of course, at the Nortwick, uh, our website, thenortwick.com. Um, reservations are released two weeks in advance. Uh, we're open seven nights a week, uh, 5 p.m. until 10 p.m., give or take. And then we do brunch at the weekends, uh, Saturday, Sunday, 11 till 2.30. And then we're going to be hopefully opening midweek lunch pretty soon. That's the next Ooh. progressional step. So we'll be opening it up as much as possible. But, yeah, we're here. Uh, we're also – we have a bar that we don't reserve. We leave that for walk-ins. So – if you see that door open, please stop on by. We're on the corner of 7th and Bleecker. Um, yeah, it's a fun time. Amazing. Well, next time I'm in New York, I'm definitely stopping by. Thank yeah, you so much, do. Chef. Congratulations. Thank you to Ella and Mona for setting this up. We have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Roddy Romero. Nice Hello. to meet you. Hello. Pleasure to meet you. Well, we met a couple of days ago. Yes. Yeah, but we'll say in our official capacities, in professional <laughs> roles, if you will. Today. 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 Uh, I want to do a little bit of framing for people of where we are, because in reading about your music and what you play, uh, I'll just, you know, Zydeco, Swamp Rock, Cajun music, Creole music. Can you clarify all for the uneducated? Descriptions all, there. Yeah, can you <clears throat> clarify for the uneducated masses? Well, uh, these days the description is uh, the Lafayette sound, maybe, or more of uh, what Lafayette may sound like. Uh, all of those sounds that you described is, is definitely where I come from and what uh, moves me in terms of music. Uh, it's all the sounds that I heard growing up as a kid here uh, in Lafayette. Uh, the hub city, the the heart of Acadiana, so to speak, um, from from Zydeco, uh, El Cido's Blues and Zydeco Club, growing up, going there and listening to uh, the famous Buckwheat Zydeco, and listening to uh, artists like Zachary Richard, more of a songwriter approach of Cajun music, Cajun rocker, and uh, and 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 back to our great public uh, radio station KRVS, uh, still making all of these sounds uh, each and every day and every weekend. Uh, it's a great blend. It's a great gumbo. It's, uh, it's what we sound like here. Did the sounds used to be more separated? Like you went to a place for Zydeco, you went for a place for Swamp Rock, you went for a place for blues, you went for a place for rock and roll? Did it, was it segmented uh, that way? Or yeah, did, like I think it, so. Growing up, uh, I started playing music when I was 12 years old. Um, what was your first love? Uh, my first love for the mu- musical instrument. Uh, well, it was the French box. It was the melodeon. It was the 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 accordion. What we call it here, but it's not called an accordion. It's not an accordion. It's a a tin button box, um, much like a harmonica. It's diatonic, so it's there's no sharps or flats. You pull one note, you push it. It's two different sounds. So that was my first love. I first heard that from my grandfather. He played a handful of songs for, for us on Sunday afternoons when we'd visit the old people in the country. What songs did he play? He played, uh, he played one song. Uh, it was called Fifi Poncho or Fifi Foncho, whatever side of the, the river you're from. Uh, <laughs> he played that song a lot, so I remember that one the most uh, and maybe a couple of waltzes. But uh, 
again, it was this fascinating um, uh, orchestra in a box. It was a, it was a, it was a carnival. It was a Ferris wheel. It was all of that that sounded like that to a five-year-old, six-year-old child. Right. You know, so that that's what drew me in first. And you toured around as a, I don't want to say a courting prodigy, but a, a, you could really play. Well, in those days, uh, it, I started when I was nine. Um, I started having the love, or at least my, my earliest memories were five, six years old. I had an, uh, a great uncle, uh, Nunk Black is what they called him. He was blind. He played the French box. We'll call it the French box for this program. And, uh, By its rightful name, as it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he played uh, just, you know, like the vieux the old time, that nobody, like t- today, nobody plays this way. So that's, that's like, it, it gives me the goosebumps talking about it. That's the earliest memories that I have musically in the family. And again, with my grandfather, and then uh, my father bought the French box when I was nine years old for my brother and I. My brother's 10 years uh, older than me. Two kids, one French box. Did you fight over it? Exactly. And whatever reason, because he's older and he's bigger, uh, I won. So I locked myself in the room for the next two years with the French box and vinyl records of of my parents. This was French music from the 1960s, dance hall music, like people like Belton Richard, Aldous Roger. Uh, This was Cajun music at a time where... It was uh, it was twin fiddles. It was steel guitar. It was lots of Bob Wills influence coming through Louisiana. So that's the records that I grew up on, and like a lightning bolt, this this young guy, and I say young, he was in his twenties or you know early thirties then, then being nineteen eighty eight or so, called Wayne Toops, and he he was from the country. He played this French box. He had a band that backed him that had a piano, that had electric guitars, that had electric bass, that had drums. And it sounded like the Allman Brothers uh, singing in French from the bayou or from the rice fields of Crowley. Uh, and that, that, that changed a path, and, and everything else has been different after that. The sounds of the bayou has changed after that. And just for quick understanding, how long has your family been in this area? Uh, well, since I was born, uh, my, my dad is from uh, the Ridge, uh, Judice area. My mother is from Rain, Louisiana, uh, a little bit further west from Lafayette. When they met, they met at a, at a bar called the OST Club, the Old, old Spanish Trail. Uh, they, they met over a dance and fell in love, and they were, you know, teenagers, and people got married back then when they were teenagers. Do you think people meet that way anymore? That people meet over like a dance? I don't think they get married as teenagers, thankfully. No. Uh, but <laughs> no. there's lots of meeting at the dance halls. Yes. Still. And how did your music evolve? You, you know, you toured um, at a young age. When did guitar enter your life? When did singing enter your life? And, and who guided you onto that path? Yeah. Um, I, I, for me, you know, like like it changed with Wayne Toops, the, my... my I got out of out of the dance hall records, and then there, this was this rock and roll sound that kind of entered, but it was still fronting uh, the, the the French box was still the front of the of the show, so it, it people like Zachary Richard and and then <clears throat> I I got invited to play the Montreal Jazz Fest when I was thirteen years old. 
how did did that how happen? How did they find I you? have no idea. I mean, this is uh, you know, I don't won't I won't tell people yeah. your age, but this was definitely pre-internet. Yes, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. So well, how did, and you have no. I mean, I guess if you, you know, know at that time, if you're the if you're the French rock prodigy, if you're the only <laughs> young kid at that time playing, you know, the old time music, then that's how they're going to find you. That's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. At least we'll talk about it yeah. in that way. So it. Uh, so I played that jazz fest, and then then I discovered this guy called Sonny Landreth, and he played the bottleneck slide. He lived in Lafayette. He was from Mississippi. I heard these sounds that that were that he was producing out of this bottleneck and this this Firebird Gibson guitar that I never heard in my life at that time before. My only records were you know pedal steel guitars and twin fiddles and nice smooth sound, and it was it was another voice that that. Uh, drew me in, intrigued me, it, it, it pulled me, it grabbed me, it did everything that it shook my bones. And I knew at that point in my life that here's another path that, well, let's, let's, let's entertain this and, and I want a guitar now. Do you remember how it made you feel? Sure. Uh, I, um, I couldn't... There's, there's this one time that um, it's in Montreal, it's at the Jazz Fest. I hear this guitar down the road. It's a sound check. It's during the daytime. And again, it's, it's something that I never heard. And I fi- found myself walking faster and faster and picking up speed to the stage and then seeing Sonny up on the stage and doing these things that something I never heard before. It was, it's like, you know, listening to that first Rolling Stone record or, or the first Bob Dylan record or for me, the first Clifton Chenier record, Zadiko Cha-Cha, that just... You know, it hits you in the forehead, and it says, "Hey, man, this is this is something special here. If you don't feel this, you must be dead." Can we hear a song? Sure. What are you gonna play for us first? Uh, I'm gonna play a song that uh, was penned by Eric Adcock, my uh, musical brother, for a long, long time, and I uh, I got the chance to arrange the song in this very studio, maybe about five or six years ago for an album called Gulfstream. The song is called Gulfstream. Here we are with Roddy Romero, live from Dockside Studios on Snacky Tunes. Dad's been shucking dozens since 42 Iron tub ice down full of false staff brew Black had a son, Bobby Charles called Blue Catholic church bells told the Louisiana blue Oyster rake scraping down Grand Isle Way Don't get no more salty than Barataria Bay A hundred years my family's done it this way Some folks call it work, but it's just another day And in life there's always love 
comes into your heart from up above. Gather my dreams and put them out to sea. Gulf Stream and I'm free. Politicians, trappers, priests, and more. We've all strolled through these double French doors. I was so busy just trying to keep their glasses full. Folks laughing, drinking, just shooting the bull. Vermilion parish sunsets across my bow. Just slipped off the edge and I don't know how. I turn the key in the lock and close up shop. The owl flies round the old steeple's clock. And in life there's always love Comes into your heart from up above Gather my dreams and put them out to sea Gulf Stream and I'm free Neon light gently taps me on the shoulder And the ice in the glass melts under the whiskey that I pour The salt in the air from the storm off the coast As I pull from my glass and offer up this toast been a good run, it's been a good haul My nets are full, time to pull in my trawl Mes amis, ma famille, especial pour mon père Que tes filets soient pleins de fruits de mer And in life there's always love Comes into your heart from up above Gather my dreams and put them out to sea Gulf Stream and I'm free That's a bit rough. It was perfect. <laughs> you mentioned Eric uh, Adcock, who is your co-founder, brother of music of the Hub City All-Stars. Sure. Uh, formed 25 years ago. Or more. Or more. Uh, how did you two meet? Uh, how did you come to, in your musical evolution, 
formed this band and, and how has it stayed together for so long? Yeah, good questions. Uh, let me start by saying we've been making music together for close to 30 years, maybe. Um, we met through, I think maybe my brother was introduced or another friend musician. It's very hazy. It goes so long back. Uh, a lot of late nights but we, we lived, in between. <laughs> we lived in the same neighborhood, or at least uh, adjoining neighborhoods. And there weren't very many young young guys, young cats at that time playing uh, Louisiana blues or French music or Zydeco music or Cajun music at that time. So we were bound or destined or uh, it was uh, in our cards to hook up. Uh, and there after that, we, we wrote songs about playing cards and drinking and a lot of things and you know, the rest is history, as they all say. But we've made music together, uh, and we've traveled the world, and we've seen so many places, and uh, we've made some brilliant records along the way that had a few Grammy nominations and a few pats on the back, and it all feels amazing, and it all feels good, and, you know, every moment passes, and we're all getting older, and I just hope that we can continue to play music and do the same thing. Well, what's amazing about this music is that uh, it's timeless. So yeah. you don't you don't look at someone who's eighty playing this music and be like, "Ooh, you're out of place." You're well, like you're you almost know, like right in place. I growing up and playing French music at the age thirteen, I was the only kid playing at right. that time, and every, all of the musicians that were surrounding me were older. They were they were older people. I've always played old music. I've always played music that I felt like were my parents' music. But in my mind, in my perspective, it's all timeless, like you said. It's, it all feels like where we come from. It's all a part of us. It's our sound. We travel the world and we take it to, to other places and people feel that whatever we're feeling, you know, however you, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's really tough to put words to for me, but just the feeling. I mean, you're still growing into the music. You're sure. still a young guy. I'm, I haven't played for my peers very much. Still, it, right. we still, you know, draw an older crowd out there. The demographic that we play for is a, a bit older. Uh, they go to dances to dance. They 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 show their appreciation appreciation by dancing, you know, more than applause. What do you learn so. from playing with someone for almost three decades? How does it evolve, and, and what language do you develop, and how does this, this <coughs> sound continue to grow and expand from, from being and having such a consistent partner? You learn different languages, like non-communication in terms of not verbally saying something, but musically, uh, or, or an eye cue, or an elbow cue, you know, in, li- in the live setting. You learn things like that. You learn things that are, are, are more natural, um, I heard this 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 uh, podcast the other day of uh, um, Rusty and Doug Kershaw, and and when Rusty was making records, he he had this I don't know what he called it. There's a there was a uh, a term for it, but it was just like this unknown energy that if he was sitting in the same room, he can anticipate what the other musician was going to do or transfer that energy. And when you play with somebody for so long, you, you, that it either happens or it doesn't, you know, you, you're, you, you feel that energy. 
place factors into a lot of your music. Uh, Hub City is sure. another name for for Lafayette. Yeah. Um, you talk about Vermilionville, Vermilionville Parish and, and Gulfstream. Right. Everyone's hometown affects their music. The, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, yeah. as you mentioned yeah. earlier, all the New York great punk bands. How does this place affect your music? And outside of the cultural heritage that comes from the music you listen to, what is it about this place that seeps into the music that you're making and writing? Well, if if you grow up uh, waking up first thing and you smell a roux on the stove, that is going to change your day. That's going to change your outlook on life and how you uh, present yourself to the world. When you That's the first thing that you smell and coffee grounds brewing. <clears throat> I feel like we how what we want to write about is is very it's plentiful here it's uh there's so many raconteurs there's so many storytellers in in our parts in this area you can go down to the to the uh corner bar and meet all sorts of characters and and uh hear all sorts of stories and so people people want to share their knowledge, share their stories, share their bullshit, share whatever they have to share here more than most places in the world that I've been to. And, you know, sometimes it's a it's it's the beautiful and then sometimes it's the not so beautiful, but that's life. It's everything in between. Can we hear another song? Yeah, absolutely. What are you gonna play for us? I'm gonna play a song called Majoli. And uh I wrote this along with Michael Juan Nunez and also Eric Adcock. Uh, it's going to try to go like this. You swept me in your undertone. 
One of the things that's clear about the music you write with Eric are the heroes that you worship, incorporate, bring in, cover, pay homage to. Uh, one, of the th- one of the things that Eric talked about was the Bobby Charles cover that's on, on Gulfstream. And he mentioned that you had been noodling around on it for years and you decided after taking a writer's block break to come <coughs> and record it for Gulfstream. I want to talk about covering your heroes because it's something that I think seems to always happen on records or live things but never really discuss how musicians actually pick that or what comes ready to it so when you begin to approach a cover what has to be in that song that speaks to you or or wants you to make it in some way your own well uh, before it starts with a song I think for me more so it's still uh, uh, where I'm from. It's still regional. It's still uh, I want to pay homage to the people that that are surround that surround me here and growing up. Uh, the guys like Clifton Chenier and the old guys, and I know it's it's like it's passing on the legacy of our music. Whether I'm interpreting that song. Uh, note for note or adjusting it to 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 fit my perspective or to what is comfortable in in the realm of my musicality as you know as a musician so when it be, when it becomes 
the focus to the song itself, the story. Uh, yeah, I really, I have to feel a part of it. I have to feel something. I have to feel empathy for the character that's singing it. I have to 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 really dive in, or I'm just covering a song. It's not going to translate the same emotion if if I don't pour everything that I have into that. Uh, when I recorded I Hope, I've been noodling with the song for a while. It was such a beautiful song. It didn't mean anything until my life was falling apart in divorce. And then it, it you know, the song took a new meaning. It took a, a new turn. Uh, and it still takes new turns. I, I I sing it now still in performance settings, but it doesn't but I don't have the same emotions that I did once we laid the song down in the studio here in at Dockside, you know, three, four or five years ago by now. When you say noodling around for a while, how how long is a while? Uh, well, yeah, I take time. A, a while could be a year, a while could be a couple of years, it it could be ten years. It took so long for us to record the record previous to Gulfstream uh, uh, over a 10-year span just for the sake of, I don't know, life happens and life gets in the middle and in the way sometimes. But um, I, I tend to lay down material, lay down record material, and then sit on it for a bit and then, you know, try to, to get a new, fresh set of ears, a fresh... Uh, uh, again, a perspective on, on what this should sound like that I'm making. And then most of the time I drive myself crazy with going back and listening and, oh, that could be better and this could be better. And, you know, today here at Dockside, that's kind of one of those days where I felt like I came here to sing some songs, re-sing some songs. And, you know, I have to be convinced by this amazing uh, engineer, producer, Justin Dockett, that, you know, that sounds really good. So, you know... Every artist does that, I'm sure. Do you find it harder to break your own songs or to break a cover? You know, that's, I think that's a great question. I feel like we've broken our songs much easier than breaking covers, but damn it, those covers sound so good and they're such great songs that I, I want to keep doing them and keep spreading them spreading them out to the world and have new listeners hear them and hear the sound of Louisiana and for people to come back here. Have any of the people you've covered been alive and commented back on what your take or your version of it? Well, uh, we had one, and I say we, Eric and I, uh, we wrote a song for Buckwheat, the late great Buckwheat's Zodico. Mm. Uh, it's an original song. It's called No Need for a Crown, and it basically talks about, you know, in the Zodico community, uh, there's lots of self-proclamation of kings, uh, and it's 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 a part of the it's a part of the 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 talk. It's part of the walk in the culture, and it's a beautiful thing. So, the the song that we wrote for Buckwheat is is really just saying that he's the best, and there's been no need for a crown. Anyway, he was uh, getting really sick and uh, toward the end of his life, unfortunately. 
we got a chance to play him a song, and he sent nothing but good, positive vibes and, and appreciation for it. And uh, so in that case, it holds a special place in our heart. Last question, two parts. Taking it back to tons. When you're in the kitchen cooking, if there is music, what are you listening to? Well, we have uh, some great Latinas in uh, working in the kitchen, and they're playing some beautiful Nortenia music on their iPhones occasionally while while they're prepping and while things are going on. Uh, we we don't have a jukebox yet, but I'm pretty sure that we're gonna put more music in tons before too long. And what is your specialty that you consider your best dish above all else? Oh, I love making sauce. I love making sauces. Switch the proteins, it doesn't matter. I just love the process of cooking down onions and cooking down the trinity, the garlic, whatever you want to put into it. Uh, I love that process of just taking the time and, and working the heat. Amazing. Um, what's coming up next? Tours, more recordings? More tours, more recordings. Uh, the Hub City All-Stars, we have a few big gigs here this year coming up already. I'm doing some solo things. I've got a trio that I'm working, going back to Europe later in the year, going up to Canada for the big Congrès Mondial, Acadian uh, celebrations in the summertime, so lots of things happening, yeah. Amazing. Where can people find you, find your music, find your tour dates? Um, come to Lafayette, Louisiana, and just <laughs> knock on some doors and ask for my name. <laughs> no, RoddyRomero.com, RoddyRomeroMusic.com as well, and just search Roddy Romero. You'll, you can find something. What are you going to take us out with? Uh, I'll do one of those covers. Perfect. I was hoping you'd say that. Big thank you to Holly and Tons. Big thank you for Justin to opening up Dockside for us and letting us record this uh, special episode of Snacky Tunes today. We really appreciate it. Roddy, thank Thank you you. for for being here. Uh, We'll be back next week with uh, another episode of Snacky Tunes. Thanks for listening. Ain't no sacred holy cow Got no pretty ruby mouth To smile and charm me through No clever silver tongue To flatter people into doing What I want them to Ain't much for pushing buttons Pulling puppet strings or fussing Besides making silly rhymes I really ain't much good at nothing But my heart keeps me amused In this big world of confusion Cause I'm a dreamer Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer No blue blood touch of class No laminated pass To where the in crowd hangs No flaming rum dessert No front row seats reserved When old blue eyes sings But break it down and love it It's more than just a promise No gift to all the girls But I got the one I wanted And through any storm that blows She still loves me Yes, she knows that I'm a dreamer Hallelujah, 
I'm a dreamer. pavement all around green meadows can't be found they will be dreamers when every cotton field is gone hope my children will have grown to be dreamers no boss to pay no mind no turning wheels to grind blade of grass disturbed or sleeping baby stirred there'll be no noise at all just a silent voice that calls to all the dreamers hallelujah I'm a dreamer and my heart keeps me Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.